This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the modern research platform for leading investors. I'm a longtime user and advocate of Tegas, a company that I've been so consistently impressed with that last fall, my firm, Positive Sum, invested $20 million to support Tegas's mission to expand its product ecosystem to unify and streamline investor research processes. In addition to the library of 55,000 transcripts, Tegas now combines at-cost, on-demand calls with a full suite of financial workflows. Whether it's quantitative analysis, company disclosures, management presentations, earnings calls, Tegas has tools for every step of your investment research. They even have over 4,000 fully drivable financial models. Tegas's maniacal focus on quality as well as its depth, breadth, and recency of content makes it the one-stop end-to-end research platform for investors. Move faster, gather deep research to build conviction, and surface high-quality, alpha-driving insights to find your differentiated edge with Tegas. As a listener, you can take the Tegas platform for a free test drive by visiting tegas.co slash Patrick. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Fuss, an investor at Irenic Capital, and today we're breaking down Qualcomm. When you think of semiconductors, Qualcomm isn't necessarily the first name that comes to mind, but its size and utility in our lives is truly striking. The business has an enterprise value of $150 billion and set the standards for 3G, 4G, and 5G mobile connectivity that we rely on so heavily in our daily lives today. I'd bet that if you don't have a Qualcomm product in your pocket right now, you most certainly have one in your home. To break down the business, I'm joined by Jay Goldberg a semiconductor industry consultant and partner at Snowcloud Capital. Please enjoy this breakdown of Qualcomm. Jay, thank you so much for joining us to break down Qualcomm. Just to set the table, semiconductors are an extremely specialized topic and the people that know them well are incredibly passionate. And I thought in the episode we did on AMD, you did a really good job taking it to people in a way that's super digestible. And so maybe just to start, if I were to ask you as a layperson, what is a semiconductor? How would you explain it to me? Like, explain to me like I'm five seems to be the vernacular, but maybe like I'm 15. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. Nice to be back. A semiconductor is a little piece of hardware that does a lot of math, more math than we can really imagine really quickly. In doing that math, we can use software to get useful things from that semiconductor. It can do things like connect a wireless signal. It can drive a car. It can play cat videos and do social media. We can do all kinds of things from these basic building blocks in our semiconductors. Because the semiconductor can do that math so fast, and we have great software tools that run on top of it to let us do all the things that we want with computers. And so then when I look across the ecosystem of semis, 
You did AMD last time. Today, we're going to cover Qualcomm. People talk about TSMC, NXPI. How should I start to segment the group? I think the key distinction for our conversation is the distinction between companies that do the design of a chip and then companies that do the physical manufacturing. And the model for most of the industry is that those are two distinct things. Manufacturing a semiconductor, especially a sort of advanced technology semiconductor, it requires huge amounts of capital, $20 billion to build a plant. We call them fabs. The TSMC is really, really good at physically manufacturing chips, but they don't actually design those chips. They are a service provider to companies like Qualcomm or AMD, who are what we call fabless semiconductor companies. They don't own fabs. They don't do manufacture themselves. They do the design and then hand it off to a company like TSMC to do the physical manufacturing. And that's really important because it lets each side specialize in what they do best. And why is it that the industry evolved that way? Was it always kind of specialized in that nature? It was not. Once upon a time, there wasn't even a distinction between hardware and semiconductors. The original companies that manufactured chips were electronics companies that made radios and televisions and telephone systems. And they did the hardware and the semiconductor and the manufacturer. They did it all themselves. But over time, like over the last 50 years, the industry has evolved tremendously, allowing different parts of the value chain to segment and specialize. What really was driving that is this concept of Moore's Law, which says that semiconductor performance doubles every two years or so. That's changing. But semiconductors are getting faster all the time for the last 40 years. But at the same time, the cost of that manufacturer has gone up at almost the same rate. The real reason we have this distinction between foundries and fabless companies is because it costs $20 billion to build a fab. And so some of it's technology, but the root of it is just capital. It's incredibly expensive to do the manufacturing. Okay. That makes sense. And so I stand here today looking at Qualcomm's financials, and it's $145 billion enterprise value business that fiscal 22 did $44 billion in sales. But in 1985, it was Erwin Jacobs in a room with six other engineers. How did we get from there to here today? First thing, as much as we've been talking about semiconductors, Qualcomm, for most of its history, wasn't really thought of as a semiconductor company. It was a wireless company. Erwin Jacobs and Andrew Viterbi and that founding team were the dream team of radio wireless engineers in their day. For most of its history, Qualcomm was very much focused on not building chips, but the wireless networks that you could build with those chips. So if you look at the history of Qualcomm, you actually have to take it back before 1985. You have to go back to 1968, when Jacobs and team founded a company called Linkabit. Linkabit is important because on the CPU side, when we talk about AMD, we talk about Fairchild and how so much of Silicon Valley all came out of this one 1950s electronics company, Fairchild. That's part of the mythos of Silicon Valley. It all sort of started with AMD and Intel all came out of Fairchild. If you actually trace it back, Linkabit has probably led to the creation of twice as many companies as Fairchild. It was very, very innovative for their time. What they really specialized in was all those guys were working around the defense complex. And the technologies that they worked on for the military, advanced digital radios, they realized had much broader consumer appeal and application. And so they took this military defense-focused technology and started making commercial and consumer applications for them. Linkabit was their first attempt at a startup. And as everybody at a startup knows, that your first one is always things that have to get ironed out. So they sold that to Maycom in 1985. That was mostly a specialty electronics business. When they founded Qualcomm in 85, they were very specifically looking at commercial applications for wireless. 
And they started with a product called Omnitrax, which did tracking of long haul trucks, put a big dish on top of a truck and you can get all kinds of telemetry data back from its speed, position, location. In the mid eighties, this is science fiction stuff. This is really futuristic. Omnitrax itself was probably never going to be a unicorn. The market isn't that big, although that company still exists today and did pretty well. What they were really doing though, is they were taking the profits from Omnitrax and investing it in R&D. And in particular, they were investing it in their own wireless standard because they knew that the big application for what they were doing was going to be mobile phones. By the mid 80s, everybody knew mobile something big. And the team at Qualcomm wanted to come up with a way to play in that market. So we have a company that's focused on mobile applications and mobile phones. I recall back when my dad had something the size of a lunchbox attached to his car. Presumably, Qualcomm played a role in that. Today, I have a supercomputer in my hand. Presumably, there were strengths and weaknesses that played into that for Qualcomm. But if I consider the domination of smartphones today with Android and iPhone, where does Qualcomm fit into that equation? So to talk about wireless phones, I think we need to pause a second on Qualcomm and talk a little bit about the wireless standards. We throw around terms like 4G and 5G all the time. I think for most people, they just assume that 1G to the next is just about my phone goes a little bit faster. And that's true, but it's important to understand the mechanism by which that actually takes place. Because this is the standards do something even more important than increase the speeds. What they're really doing is increasing the capacity of a given piece of radio spectrum. The mobile operators buy or lease big chunks of radio spectrum from the regulators, and they pay lots of money for it. And their whole goal, I mean, this is really their only asset, is this radio spectrum they have access to. So they're very incentivized to squeeze as much capacity out of that radio spectrum as possible. The way that they do this is by each iteration of the mobile standard, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, has been increasing the capacity of that link. And really what I'm talking about here is the link between your smartphone and the telecom operator's base station, that link in between the two. Each version of the standard has done a better job of squeezing more capacity out of that link, which makes the operators more profitable and lets us do all kinds of wild things with our phones. And so the story of Qualcomm in its early days was very much around the standards, the standards which determined how this link worked. And in the 80s, when they first got started, it was essentially chaos. Everybody had their own system for handling this link. And we had this period called the standards wars when there were all these different standards jockeying for position. By the late 80s, it became clear that the dominant standard in most of the world was something that had come out of Europe called GSM. What Qualcomm came up with was an alternative called CDMA. And I'm sorry for the acronyms. I'm apologizing ahead of time. It's hard to talk about this without getting into all the acronyms. But we had these two vying standards. By the mid-90s, it sort of narrowed down to the two of these. GSM had 60-70% of the subscribers running on it. CDMA was never more than 20-ish percent. But CDMA was superior to GSM. And I say that with a little caution because at some points in history, if you said that in the wrong bar at the wrong time, you get into a fistfight. But CDMA had a lot of advantages over GSM. And what Qualcomm really did, what really drove its rise to prominence was its ability to work with the organization that sets the wireless standards. It's a UN agency. And Qualcomm worked that group, managed it, invested heavily in the R&D, so that by the time we got to 3G, a lot of what Qualcomm had done for their CDMA standard got incorporated into the global GSM standard for 3G. And that was important because from that point on, 
almost every phone in the world was using Qualcomm's technology or its IP in some way. And that continues to this day. And so I think I want to better understand, given their ability to kind of win the standards war, what that means for the economics of the business today. I think you had mentioned that effectively every smartphone in the world is on their standard. Do they license that IP? Are they producing the chips that go inside the phones? Where do they now inject themselves into the equation? So today, Qualcomm essentially has two primary lines of business. It has its semiconductor business, where they sell chips, and then they have their licensing business. And the licensing business is them licensing their IP, their 30 years of R&D investment. And if you want to make a phone that communicates with the telecom operators, you need to get a license from Qualcomm. Now, under the terms of standards, patent law, and all that stuff, Qualcomm has to offer a license to anybody, but the law never really made it clear what Qualcomm could charge for that. So Qualcomm charges a pretty nice royalty. So they get two, three, four, sometimes 5% of the cost of every phone out there, just paid to them as a royalty for the right to use their technology, which is embedded into the standard. Separate from that, they also have this big chip division, which makes the key semiconductors for mobile phones. And the main product they make is something called a modem or a baseband. That's the chip that communicates between the phone and the telecom operator. And again, the software that runs on top of this chip, I talked about software at the head of this, the software that's running on the chip is the physical implementation of the wireless standards, 3G, 4G, 5G. So not to get too far into the weeds of the financials of the business, although I obviously want to address that. I look back through the mid-2000s, and candidly, the business's top line didn't grow that much, which to me is somewhat striking because the proliferation of smartphones, the incredible amounts of data that are flowing through our mobile devices, the general use, the negotiating leverage I presume that they would have with the suppliers of the phones, all to me look like they'd be incredibly compelling. But revenue was, until 2022, rather flat. What was causing that? What were the dynamics going on from 2015 to 2020 with the business that may have influenced the growth? So I think the very simplified answer to that question is, by the time we got to 4G, which was kind of like 2014, 2015, the standards wars were over. Qualcomm was in everything. And the mobile phone market itself sort of went ex-growth. It had been growing for years. But by the time we got to the late teens, everybody in the world who was going to have a cell phone had one if not two. So growth sort of just naturally slowed. They had saturated the market, I guess you could say. The other thing to keep in mind is that Qualcomm sales tend to be somewhat cyclical around the introduction of a new standard. So when 3G comes out or 4G or now 5G, in the early years of that standard being rolled out, Qualcomm sales tend to do particularly well as everybody's upgrading and the carriers are sort of pushing everyone to upgrade to the latest standard. Historically, what the pattern with Qualcomm has been, they're usually the first to market with a baseband chip. They're the first one with a 4G modem. They're the first one with a 5G modem. Those first years, they do very well because it's not quite a monopoly. You got to be careful with Qualcomm using that word. But for the first year or two, they're the only supplier of next-gen modems. So I think what happened in the late teens was they had done incredibly well with 4G. They had almost three years where they're the only choice on the market. And then competitors caught up. MediaTek got its chip out. Intel had something for a hot minute. And sales started to reach saturation point. 
The other weird wrinkle in all this is that Apple was growing particularly well through all this period. And we can talk about this later, but Apple and Qualcomm had a very contentious relationship. Yeah, they've got a wonderful love-hate relationship between those two organizations, it seems. You mentioned Intel briefly. As a generalist in the space, that tends to be the one that people are most familiar with by name. But Intel seemingly had somewhat of a fall from grace. What are the dynamics between Qualcomm and what you would consider their direct competitors? Who are they? And how have things kind of evolved? So in the early 2000s, Qualcomm had a dozen competitors. There were lots of companies trying to build modems. The leader at that point, as we entered 3G, the leader was Texas Instruments, who supplied all the chips for Nokia. Almost all of those people, all of those companies have exited the market now. TI, Broadcom, Intel, the list goes on. Today, the market is basically Qualcomm, MediaTek from Taiwan. And at the very low end, there's Tsinghua Unisoc, which used to be called Spreadrum, and at sort of the very low end of the market. It's those three. Typically, the pattern is Qualcomm does very well in the more expensive phones, $600 and up. MediaTek is in the middle, and Qualcomm and MediaTek bite it out a little bit for the $400 to $600 range. And then below $300, it's all MediaTek or at the very bottom, Tsinghua Unisoc. And that's the way the market is today. And so Apple and the iPhone have somewhat become synonymous with smartphones, despite the fact that Android as an operating system, I believe, has the largest install base. I think we could probably do a podcast alone on the relationship between Qualcomm and Apple. But why don't you kind of take us through that relationship and what brought it to a head? So Apple came to the market and in typical Apple fashion, wanted to do it its own way. Back during the Think Different campaign, they wanted to break the market realities. And they were incredibly successful in doing that when it came to the operators. Prior to the iPhone's launch, all the software on the phone had to be vetted by the operators first. And Apple broke that model with the App Store and paved the way for Google and the Play Shop. Apple also was very wary about dealing with Qualcomm. Even before they entered the market, they knew they wanted to keep Qualcomm at arm's length. And it was very much a situation where the immovable force meets the irresistible object. You had two companies that were very used to getting their own way And Apple wanted to be very strategic about keeping Qualcomm far away for a long time. So they resisted using Qualcomm modems for the first 12 iPhones. And they did everything they could to find chips from other vendors. Where they started to get in trouble, though, was they weren't actually paying their royalty to Qualcomm. I won't get into all the legal technicalities of it, but they had done a pretty good job of avoiding paying royalty payments, which Qualcomm could ignore for a while, but couldn't ignore forever. So they eventually entered into a brutal, brutal lawsuit. Personally, I think Apple would have been fine with fighting that lawsuit, funding that lawsuit indefinitely. Hundreds of millions of dollars a year in legal fees. They didn't really care. They didn't want to put themselves in a position where Qualcomm could push them around. But it came to a head whenever the lawsuit was settled because that was the transition between 4G and 5G. And Apple really, really needed a 5G phone for a variety of its own reasons. And they could not get a 5G modem from anyone but Qualcomm at that point. The timing is very clear. Intel had been their modem provider up to that point. And Intel signaled that they were not going to have their 5G modem ready on time for Apple's next iPhone. And within weeks, Apple settled the lawsuit because they knew they had to go to Qualcomm and become a Qualcomm customer. I believe it was in 2019, effectively, Apple cried uncle and waved the white flag and gave in. And interestingly enough, 
you watch the revenue of Qualcomm inflect higher. Is there something else that's happened in the last couple of years? Obviously, it's become incredibly topical, the shortage of chips. Is there a dynamic there? What is exactly happening now if you bring us to 2021, 2022 with this business? So I think a couple of things. One, Apple went from 0% of revenue to now, I think it's Qualcomm's biggest customer. So that helped growth considerably. 5G took off, that helped growth too. Set against that is Apple has made it clear for many years now that they view Qualcomm as a temporary solution. Apple actually has plans now to build its own modem and displace Qualcomm entirely. The problem is that's actually really hard to do. For a variety of reasons, a baseband like what Qualcomm makes is a very, very different chip than what Apple has made with the M2 and its application processor, the A-series. The modem just works very differently. It requires a very different skill set to design one. So it looks now like Apple's actually having a really hard time building their own modem. They're going to keep trying. They really, really want to displace Qualcomm, but it's unclear when or if they'll actually be able to do that. Right now, it doesn't look like they'll have it this year or next year. So now we're into 2025, maybe then. If we zoom out a bit and I think about connectivity, I think about the Internet of Things, we're being led to believe that essentially everything that can be connected to the internet, digitized, automated, whether it be factory floors, robotics, my refrigerator, emergency vehicles, everything's going to be talking to each other. To me, that seems like something that would be a structural tailwind to someone like Qualcomm. But I'm unclear as to how that's playing out or if it is at all. How do they think about that? This whole notion of the Internet of Things has been around for a long time. It's very amorphous. It's not one single thing. It's lots of different things. It will happen, but it's just going to take a while for that all to percolate. That being said, there's another important change that took place at Qualcomm two years ago is they got a new CEO. Cristiano Oman became CEO. And since he's taken over, it's very clear that they have altered their strategy and certainly their messaging. So now Qualcomm doesn't really talk about themselves as being a wireless company the way that they sort of were all their history. They talk about the edge edge computing. In this context, what they're talking about is all those devices, all those things you just mentioned, where Qualcomm really wants to be the leading choice for communications solutions or anything that could have connectivity to the internet through the mobile operators. Yes, it's IoT, all the sort of random devices. They have an IoT business that's in lots of those things. But the other big category that's clearly become very important to them now is automotive. And the idea of the connected car not necessarily autonomous, but just connected cars, electric cars, electric vehicles, digital dashboards, all that kind of things are actually a really, really good application for the things that Qualcomm does well. So if we kind of take a step away from the technical and the strategic and consider Qualcomm from the perspective of capital markets, they've had a pretty interesting, I would call it five years from a M&A and a takeover perspective. It's rare that you see multi-multi-hundred billion dollar companies go hostile on each other or have failed M&A processes, but they continue to become relevant. So maybe kind of take us through some of those over the last couple of years. One I know about is Broadcom, but I believe with NXP, there was Dynamics as well. What exactly transpired? So in this time period, sort of the late teens, Qualcomm was cognizant of the fact that growth had slowed. They recognized that the rest of the industry was consolidating. So lots of lots of mergers and semis in this period. 
problem Qualcomm had, it wasn't quite sure how to go about that. And in that period, Hoktan at Broadcom, who was the arch acquirer, the arch consolidator of the entire industry, had been buying up companies left and right, consolidating them and moving on to the next target. It got to the point where he needed to find bigger and bigger targets in order to move the needle. And he'd done so many deals that by the time we reached that point, Qualcomm was the only target big enough that met all of Broadcom's criteria. So Broadcom approached Qualcomm, got rebuffed by the management team, and so took the deal hostile. It was pretty exciting. I was actually working inside Qualcomm at the time, and to see that going on, it was very, very complicated emotions everyone felt. Because Broadcom, Avago under Hock Tan, was a ruthlessly cost-controlled company. And Qualcomm was not that. Qualcomm had and still has four or five corporate jets and all kinds of perks. And Broadcom's argument is there was a lot of fat to cut. And there was probably some resonance to that. It became a very, very contentious proxy battle that went down to the wire. When it was first announced, Qualcomm was caught a little bit flat-footed. They didn't know what to do looking for a defense. They didn't think Broadcom would do it. So when Broadcom actually showed up, their response was to acquire NXP. I know that if you read the corporate presentations of the time, it's all about synergies and strategies between Qualcomm and NXP. But at heart, it's hard not to see it as a defense mechanism. Let's buy NXP. That will make us too big for Broadcom to afford. Unfortunately for Qualcomm, that strategy didn't play out. One, Broadcom stock kept running. And so didn't matter. Broadcom could have bought combined Qualcomm and XP, sort of shattered that defense. Even more problematic is the Chinese regulators deliberately slept on the deal. They didn't want to respond. There's, of course, geopolitical stuff happening in the background. And the Chinese regulators, the antitrust regulators in China, never came to a conclusion or even officially reviewed the deal, which just sort of let it dangle out there, sort of ran out the clock. So there goes Qualcomm's defense. They can't buy NXP. Poison pills and other stuff don't really have an effect. So it came down to this contentious proxy vote. And at the very last minute, the day before the final shareholder vote, it was very clear at that point that Broadcom was going to win. But that morning before, the Trump administration issued an executive order directing CFIUS to block the deal. The US government blocked the deal on national security grounds. And it's complicated. Broadcom, for all historical reasons, was actually domiciled in Singapore. So it was a foreign entity. So there's this weird national security label put on the deal. To this day, nobody quite understands how Qualcomm pulled that rabbit out of the hat. There's lots of theories, but nobody quite knows how they managed that. But it didn't matter because the effect was the same. That deal was blocked. Broadcom could not buy Qualcomm. And then actually, we see Broadcom giving up on semis entirely and moving on to software acquisitions after that. Very, very complicated set of events. Broadcom couldn't buy Qualcomm. Qualcomm couldn't buy NXP. And everybody sort of goes home, no deal. And so I guess at this point, it's 2017, the Trump administration blocks the deal. They just spent the last, call it, three years in this battle with a behemoth in the space and contemplating M&A. You would imagine losing sight of the ball, but then they get the Apple settlement and things are back off to the races. You had mentioned the new management team. Are there any unique, idiosyncratic directions they could take the business in? Or is it mostly just positioning and marketing, but really, they're continuing to do what they've always done? There are a lot of things working in Qualcomm's favor right now. One is, not least, is they've made up their minds and have a clear direction of what they want to do. And that's helped tremendously, both at sort of the macro strategic level, but also internally, 
they sort of rationalized all the reporting structures in the org charts. That's made a huge difference. Secondly, they know that the markets they're going to go after next are going to look different than the markets they've been in historically. It's not just about mobile phones anymore. It's about all these other devices. And they've been doing trial and error. And I think after years of that, they finally have a pretty clear model for how they're going to go about getting these next big markets. They've identified sweet spots of places where their products could really fit without having to stretch too far. I do think that it's unlikely that they're going to do any major transformative acquisitions. There aren't a lot of targets left. It's just not what they want to do. But they have been making selective bolt-on acquisitions, most notably a company called Nuvia, which helps them with core compute functionality. And then they also acquired a river out of Vianeer. They took a software business out of a European automotive supplier, and they've incorporated that into their automotive solution now. Small billion-dollar-ish acquisitions to small for Qualcomm, but very key strategic material that they need. And I think with that, they'll probably add a few more, but this has now positioned them to go after the next interesting immediate markets in places where Qualcomm can address pretty quickly. That was a really nice preview into capital allocation. I look at this business that does call it high single digit billion of operating cash flow. Its capex is about $2 billion. And so effectively every year, they've got somewhere from 6 to $10 billion that they can use for M&A, that they can return to shareholders via dividends and buybacks. They have a wonderful problem of having too much cash. And I just am confused as to what they can do with it. My best guess is that they're going to continue to return shareholder capital, buying back shares, keep increasing their dividend, just sort of keeping it steady state. I don't think they want to buy anything big, but I do think that they're going to need to invest fairly heavily in some of these new markets they're going after. They're in early stages in automotive, but I think they're going to have to make a pretty big investment in building out their sales capability. They never really had a sales force per se before. Now they have a chief revenue officer and that person has to go out and build his team and build a structure around it. There's a lot of those nitty gritty detailed investments that they have to make. I think that's where they're going to spend their money, that and buying back shares and dividends. People always characterize the semiconductor industry as cyclical. And to an extent, the revenues would support the cyclicality of the industry. But a business that has 65% gross margins or high 50s, low 60s, doesn't jump off the page to me as cyclical. What is it that allows them to just continue to realize such healthy margins? And what would potentially put that at risk, if anything? Part of their margin success story is that their licensing business, QTL, which is 15% of revenue, but almost 30% of operating income. It's like 90% gross margins, 85% gross margins, which goes a long way towards fueling all kinds of other things. In terms of near-term threats to them, I think there is going to be a little bit of a pause now. 5G is largely built out. The next evolutions of the wireless standards are going to take a while. There's like a midterm step millimeter wave, 5.5G, that's going to take forever to come. So we're kind of talking about 6G for the next cycle, which is probably not until the late 2020s. So there is this elongated pause in their normal cyclicality around the standards. It's not going to turn sales down, but it's going to slow growth rates. There is some concern around MediaTek. Like I said, MediaTek and Qualcomm, after being very bitter rivals for years, seem to have come to an unspoken truce where they've divided up the market. MediaTek itself has its own set of pressures, and they've done a great job of catching up 
it used to be, like I said, for 4G, they were almost three years behind Qualcomm. 5G, they were six months behind Qualcomm. They've really upped their game in terms of engineering capabilities. And so do we start to see MediaTek and Qualcomm duke it out for some of the higher end phones? It's unlikely, but it's possible. But I think probably the biggest concern that I have for Qualcomm is the trend towards non-chip companies rolling their own chips. So Apple famously makes the other key chip in a phone, the applications processor. And Apple's application processor is much better than Qualcomm's Snapdragon processor, like two years ahead. That's very likely to become a problem for Qualcomm, not because of it's just a lost business at Apple, but also because all of Apple's competitors, Xiaomi, Samsung, Oppo, Vivo, who have to compete with Apple and have to compete against that N-series chip from Apple, they need a solution. It's arguable whether Qualcomm is delivering that. It's not like alarm bells are ringing and we have to be panicking, but it is something that I'm keeping an eye on that is a little bit of concerning over the next few years. Do we start to see sales dampen because Qualcomm's applications processor chip is just not quite as performative as what some of these companies are going to develop internally? In that response, you mentioned some overseas competitors. And I feel like whenever you talk about chips, geopolitics is something you have to acknowledge. China, Taiwan, Korea, the US. Where does Qualcomm sit within this global struggle for chip dominance? MediaTek is a Taiwanese company. So there's not a lot of trade friction there. I think the bigger problem is that most of the handset industry is, I mean, there's five handset companies left in the world that really have scale. There's Apple here in the US, there's Samsung in Korea, and then there's two Chinese companies, BBK, which owns Apple and Vivo, and Xiaomi, plus another dozen or so Chinese brands kicking around. What that means is that most of Qualcomm's customers are based in China or do all their assembly there, or most of their assembly there. Apple, all the Chinese handset vendors, all that is done in China. And so there is a big concern. And when the Biden administration launched their chip sanctions on China back in October, there was some speculation that the backlash from China would include a ban on Apple products. Going back to the Trump administration, there's always the rumor like, if China chose to retaliate, Apple would be a natural target, it seems. That's, that's a problem for Qualcomm, right? If you actually look at Qualcomm's financials, when they do geographic breakdowns, 60-70% of their sales are to China. But that's because they're selling to Foxconn plants in China. That doesn't mean the end market is China. I think Qualcomm is in the same camp that much of the rest of the world's electronics industry is in, is that they're very dependent on South China, Shenzhen, that whole complex. And it's absolutely a factor. Qualcomm, for whatever reason, often ends up within the targets of governments. So there was a big dispute with Chinese government got very mad at Qualcomm back in the early teens, where they had antitrust and tax and all kinds of different problems. All the authorities sort of landed on Qualcomm on one day. They're very much in the crosshairs of regulators in China and other places too. If there is increased trade friction and the Chinese government wants to go down this path, Qualcomm would be a very natural target. So there is some risk there. And then the other thing that always becomes topical in these conversations around semiconductor businesses is the new dynamics around fab and fabless. Is there any sort of capacity constraint that would impact them directly? And I guess we went from a position where the fab producers seem to be having a lot of negotiating leverage to perhaps capacity relaxing. What is the impact on Qualcomm's ability to produce? So there was absolutely a cyclical shortage in 2021. Everybody had a hard time getting capacity. Largely, that was driven by pandemic-related issues. Those now seem to be easing. But even at the height of that, Qualcomm had a very good relationship with both TSMC and Samsung Foundry. They, like everyone else, had some supply disruptions, but they weren't significant. And they seem to be through them now entirely. 
the bigger issue, though, is again something that everyone faces: is we are all dependent heavily on TSMC. TSMC is the only foundry capable of producing these advanced processes for semiconductor manufacturing. And Qualcomm's strategy has been a little different than some of the others in dealing with this. Qualcomm will go back and forth between TSMC, who's the clear leader in this space, and Samsung, who is the clear number two. The problem is Samsung is kind of keeping pace with TSMC, but they're behind. And sometimes they're six months behind, and sometimes they're a year behind. And so Qualcomm will switch in and out of Samsung. From what I can tell, they really, really want to keep Samsung propped up as a legitimate foundry alternative. Plus, Samsung is obviously a customer from other sides of the table. There is this dynamic where the world is very, very dependent on TSMC. There's no easy way around that. Qualcomm is not going to go out and start building $20 billion fabs. They're stuck with this reality and managing it as best as they can. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic when your most vital supplier seems to be in such a strong position from a negotiating perspective. But they've seemed to navigate it pretty well. So far, yeah. And so if I kind of evaluate this business and look at their competitive advantages, switching costs associated with it, the barriers to entry beyond the supply constraints, seems like they're very well positioned. We have potentially a gap in the next cycle for them. But when you study this business and think about Qualcomm in the context of its peers, what are your lessons as someone that can look and invest across the space? And then when you think about them from an operational perspective, perhaps some of the nuances of the business or the decisions they made that set them on a trajectory that's well in excess of their peers that have fallen behind. So I think the first lesson is patent everything. If you go to Qualcomm today, you go to their main building, this giant atrium, they have walls that are just lined with all their patents. And it is, I think, intended to be intimidating. And it really is. They have tens of thousands of patents. Patent everything. And if you want to have those have any value, be ready to go to court repeatedly to defend them. That's lesson one. Lesson two, I think we draw from more recent history of Qualcomm is know what you want to be, know what your strategy is, and rationalize your organization around that. I think for a lot of recent late teens period, Qualcomm didn't have that. They didn't know what they wanted to do. And that was reflected operationally. Now that they have a clearer strategy, they've reorged and things seem to be moving in the right direction. That's going to give them the opportunity to go after some of these really interesting businesses, especially in automotive. The other interesting thing about Qualcomm is basic innovation through hard engineering. What I mean by that is if you look at a lot of the products that are coming out from a lot of the industry, it's very incremental. This year's CPU is a little bit faster than last year's CPU. This year's GPU has interesting packaging, so it's a little bit faster than last year's GPU. Qualcomm's whole history is around really pushing the envelope on the laws of physics around especially wireless radios and what they can do with wireless. And I think that continues to this day. There's an interesting sort of corner of their business that is around radios, their RFFE business. There is the potential for Qualcomm to do some really, really important things there that are technically incredibly challenging that if they can pull off, have very big strategic implications. Today, Qualcomm is very reliant on its modem as its strategic high ground in the phone. If they do well with their RF products, they could actually have a second strategic high ground or second fortification in their strategic positioning. And the way to get there is entirely through some very hard engineering. It's one of the things that keeps us interesting for me is that Qualcomm, as much as it's a semiconductor company and it's going down this traditional semiconductor path and we're talking about fabs and capacity, there is still some really, really interesting innovation 
and basic fundamental engineering that they're doing that has the potential to once again reshape the whole game. And so maybe this is an opportunity to talk about the culture that you are able to observe from the outside. Is there anything unique to them culturally that really stands out? Today, Qualcomm is in transition. I think they're attempting to redefine their culture. But historically, for most of its history, up until like 2019, Qualcomm was a family-run firm. Not just family-owned, but family-run. Erwin Jacobs was chairman and CEO until he handed it off to his son, Paul, who only left the company, left the board in 2019, after the whole Broadcom fallout. And that was reflected organizationally, internally. I think for a long time, that was a big advantage for Qualcomm. It let them move quickly. It gave them a lot of advantage when they were defending themselves. For a lot of the 90s and aughts, they were being attacked on every side constantly. And having the patriarch there helped them get through that. But it also came with all kinds of organizational challenges, which are now finally getting addressed. There were just too many dotted line reporting like, this person reports to me, but really he reports to somebody else over there who he's known for 20 years and they're friends of somebody else. There was a lot of that in place. That structure has reached the end of its utility and it's time to move on to something more functional. So if I look at the evolution of power at the company, you had Erwin Jacobs, you had Paul Jacobs, and then you had your first non-family member CEO between Paul and Aman. What is it that characterized Steve's transition there in changing the culture away from that family orientation? And then Aman as a Brazilian leader of an American semiconductor company just strikes me as unique. I would be curious to learn more about how he came into the CEO seat. First, let me defend Steve. I don't mean to disparage him at all. He was CEO during some pretty challenging times. He got them through the Broadcom stuff. He got them through NXP. He got them through Apple. A lot of the changes we're seeing today, you could possibly trace back to when he was still around. The Nuvia acquisition, which is very important, took place while he was still CEO. So not to disparage Steve Malikoff. What's interesting about Cristiano is that he actually, I mean, he's an engineer by background, but he was never really deeply involved in the engineering side of the business. He came up through the carrier relations side of the business. The mobile operators of the carriers were crucial to Qualcomm's early years because so much of Qualcomm's business model was built around advancing the mobile standards. And the telecom operators were the ones who really called the shots on that process. The fact that Cristiano came up through that and is now the CEO says a lot about the importance of that side of the business. It's hard to piece together because it's not actually in any of the financials. They don't sell anything to the carriers. Qualcomm was instrumental in getting us to 3G and 4G. And a big part of that process was working with the carriers and getting their buy-in. So that, I think, is reflected with Cristiano being in charge. And what's doubly interesting about that is now he is leading the charge to move the company away from that total reliance on wireless, on the wireless networks. They won't abandon it entirely. It's still important. He's really taking the lead in pushing them into new areas that have very different dynamics. He speaks often about pushing augmented reality, virtual reality, and automotive solutions. I'm curious, do you happen to know what Meta uses in terms of chips for their devices? And is Qualcomm playing a role in that? Yes, it's Qualcomm. Facebook actually, four or five months ago, said that they were abandoning efforts to build their own chips for their VR headsets for Oculus, and were instead moving entirely to Qualcomm. And then I know, I guess the other players in the space ultimately will be Apple, Microsoft. Is Qualcomm everywhere that they need to be yet? If 
and when ARBR become mainstream? To the extent that anyone knows the answer to that question, Qualcomm is in all the right places currently, with the likely exception of Apple. Who knows what Apple's planning, but my guess is that they're going to do their own chip there. But everywhere else, Qualcomm seems to be very well positioned. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us to help us to break down Qualcomm, which the evolution has been fascinating. The relevance of it is quite striking. And ironically, for a business that's not necessarily a household name, despite its size, is probably in each and every one of our houses, if not in our pockets every day, which to me is an awesome thing. That's right. We wouldn't have 5G. We wouldn't have smartphones without Qualcomm. They're very important. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 